This is Kimber Russell. I'm a producer for LST's miniseries about women in the law. Today we are recording in Denver, Colorado at the University of Denver Sturm College of Law. Along with Kyle McEntee, the show's executive producer, we're moderating a roundtable discussion about the retention of women in the legal profession. So let's meet our panelists. Hi, my name is Liz Krupa. I'm a Denver native and I own my own law firm. Hi, my name is Zach Mountain. I'm a trial attorney with the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development. Hello, my name is Leslie Fields, and I've been retired now from the practice of law for about two years. Uh, Before that, I practiced for about 33 years, mostly at the law firm of Fagri Baker Daniels, uh, and I was uh, on the management board there. Hi, I'm Chris Grohl. I'm a partner at Holland & Hart, and I do predominantly mergers and acquisitions and general corporate work. Hello, everyone. My name is Miko Brown, and I'm a partner at the law firm of Wheeler Trig O'Donnell here in Denver, which is a litigation boutique. And my name is Kyle McEntee. I'm the executive director of Law School Transparency. According to Stephanie Kuntz and Elizabeth Dickinson, research shows that men and women in heterosexual relationships want to share things equally. Miko, is this consistent with your experience? And if yes, why do you think there's such a disconnect between beliefs and actions? That is my experience, and I and I think my general perception, not looking at people around me. But I think that type of equality is very hard because cultural stereotypes are so ingrained uh, that it makes it very hard to accomplish. And I recently had an experience. I've got three children, eight, six, and four. And I showed up at my daughter's school event, and I got a wow, thanks for showing up, Miko. (laughs) Um, I've gotten So You Do Exist a few times. Whereas if my husband shows up to a school event, he is a hero for showing up. He is father of the year for showing up at these events. Um, If he doesn't show up, he gets a pass just like every other father. Um, If I don't show up, it's I'm a terrible mother. So, you know, that's one example why I think equality is very, very hard to achieve. Um, My husband gives the examples of when um, we have to stay home with the kids for whatever reason. And he said, you know, Miko, you're very lucky. If you go to the playground, you blend in with all the other moms. There are mommy groups that you can go to. It's very easy for you to have a normal life. Whereas if I stay home and I go to the kids' um, playground, you know, I'm kind of the creepy guy hanging around all the stay-at-home moms. Um, So it makes it uncomfortable for him. So it cuts both ways. There are advantages and disadvantages for women and men, but I think the cultural stereotypes still pervade, and it makes uh, sharing roles equally very hard. I agree with you, Miko. My late husband uh, quit practicing law at a certain point to take care of our two boys, and he would always feel like the odd man out um, because he didn't bake. He couldn't really do a lot of functional stuff, so he started getting his commercial driver's license so that he could drive the school bus just so he had an actual job when he was doing it. And for me, I had a little bit of a different experience. I think I was when I was a state public defender, I was picking a jury in a case in Grand Junction. And one of the jurors, I was pregnant at the time, one of the jurors said, you should be home. I said, excuse me? And he said, if you loved your children, you would stay home. You would not work. And I, I was shocked. took me a little bit to recover. And the judge said, excuse me, we'll speak to you back in chambers. <laughs> I didn't have to. The judge got him out. <laughs> well, my experience comes from starting a marriage that's now in its 20th year. Uh, where my husband and I actually decided to kind of reverse the traditional roles, and he would stay at home uh, and uh, take care of our daughter and oversee the household, and I would pursue a career. Um, I wish I could say that uh, we discussed all the pros and cons thoroughly, but it kind of happened more organically. He had had a distinguished career in the film industry, and was ready to be a father and a husband, and my career was just taking off, so we decided that he uh, he would be home and I would uh, be in the workforce. You know, did that decision come at a cost to some extent? I think uh, looking back now over 20 years, I'm sure there were times when he had some regrets about that um, and some disappointments. I do think uh, our society still seems to place a lot more emphasis on the spouse that is earning the paycheck, that is uh, bringing in the money, and uh, the thought being that somehow they're making a greater contribution, when I think all of us know that the people who stay at home can make uh, equally uh, great contributions and uh, great sacrifice. 
Liz, you spoke a little bit about the gendered expectations when your husband was taking care of your children. Catherine Bartlett talked to the double bind of gendered expectations in the workplace and Catherine Cockrell, the South Carolina attorney, talked about her constant fear of being fired for being such an enthusiastic mother. What is your relationship to that set of gendered expectations? I think they clearly exist. I can, you know, give you a, just maybe a few examples. And, and I think one of the things that most women that are moms can identify is when you have you take time off for a child's event or you want to attend certain things, you have to be careful because you don't want your management or people to think that your priority is always your kids and therefore never your work and you're always going to make decisions based on what's good for your kids. And while that should be celebrated and that should be something that hopefully is rewarded, it isn't because the concern is that you won't go that extra mile. You won't travel if you have to travel. When I worked for the Securities and Exchange Commission, I tried cases all over the country and I'd be gone for six weeks at a time and the SEC would fly my kids and my husband out to see me or fly me home for a weekend. And that was a great benefit to me. But I would always think about how I would present family things and usually not say where I was going for leave. Uh, when my husband, when my late husband was really sick, we started a care page for him and friends would post things. He used to coach our kids' baseball teams. We used to go to the Rockies games all the time. And he became a quadriplegic because the cancer was in his spinal cord. We went to a Rockies game and somebody posted a picture of the four of us at a Rockies game. And I actually got a call from somebody at my Denver regional office saying, I thought you were on family medical leave. How could you be at a baseball game? And I just thought, wow, okay, maybe you don't understand. (laughs) But there are, you know, it's those types of things that unless you are in that role, perhaps you don't understand. And there lies some of the problem with having the lack of women in these management positions in big firms or big offices like that. Now, for, for the men here, I would like to open it up to you. On the, on the reverse end, when your children were being born, what was the expectation on you? Would you be taking family leave or was that disadvantageous to you? So my legal career is my, my second career, but um, I want to note that I think that firm culture or organizational culture is really different in each place. I think that um, it's, it's an important conversation, but I think it, it has also evolved. It's uh, most men and women uh, within, within my firm have, have pictures of their family and uh, and the kids are always along on, on firm events. Um, my daughter's first time at ice skating was at a, at a firm, firm event. And I think that the, the more you know about other folks, uh, the, the more that um, you collaborate, the more you communicate, and the better you communicate, um, ultimately that, that helps out the, the client as well. I'm glad that Clark mentioned that, you know, the culture, I think, really makes a difference from one place to another. Um, I work for the federal government, and I have to say that my office has been um, wonderful with me since my son was born last year. Um, I was actually able to take uh, both. I, I took two weeks when my son was born to you know be with my wife to really make sure that she was recovering and recuperating well. Um, but then after my wife finished up her 12 weeks of FMLA leave, I actually took four and a half months myself um, to be home with our son because I wanted to make sure that I had that opportunity to really develop a bond with him. Um, and it was a wonderful experience. And my uh, my office, the staff, everyone, I mean, our, our bosses were just wonderful about supporting me through that. Um, and so while I understand that there are these problems that exist, um, I, I think, uh, you know, there are places that are, it's working really well. And um, I think that you, we should keep encouraging that. Speaking of problems that might happen when people are taking their family medical leave or their childcare leave, have any of you on the panel either been expected to work while you were on parental leave or gave somebody an assignment while they were on parental leave? I'm going to maybe be different from the other folks speaking. I think everybody um, would like for there to be equality and sharing of gender roles and sharing of parenting, but I think the nature of the practice of law now, you ask that question, I think almost everybody that I know who has been on leave has to answer some questions, has to be accessible. We are 24-7 business now, and so... 
My leave was over 14 years ago, and so it was a little bit less intrusive then, but not entirely intrusive. And I think we do ask our lawyers to at least be responsive. I don't think we ask anybody to close a deal while they're on leave, but to answer questions um, and to let us know the status of things and to be at least a little bit accessible, I think, I think that is the nature of the practice of law right now. Is that reasonable? That's a great question. Um, I don't know the answer. I don't know that it's sustainable. Let me say that. Um, I think it's very hard to do. I think that clients, at least clients of large law firms, pay significant sums of money, and they pay those large fees in order to have constant accessibility. I think the speed of business is such that um, sometimes our clients don't have a choice. Yeah, and I think there's a distinction between being accessible and being intrusive on someone's downtime or flex time or uh, mommy time. I, I tend to agree with you. I, I think that we have to um, have open channels but that doesn't mean that you don't have a partner or an associate that is overviewing your work and making sure that the times that they have to actually contact you when you're taking time off to be with family can't be kept to a minimum. And I think it's reasonable, but I would like to see it applied equally to both men and women. And that's that's the problem that I have. I feel like people are much more protective of maternity leave than they are of paternity leave. Um, it's not people have no problem calling a dad who's on paternity leave and asking him to do an assignment. People are much more hesitant to do that for women. And I think it's great when we have people like Clark and Zach. I think it's what we really need to get equality underway who are brave enough souls to take that paternity leave and to guard it as fiercely as the women guard maternity leave. Because as long as there's a difference, raising children is going to be a female issue. And for us to have equality, it needs to not be a female issue. It needs to be a family issue. And right now, I think child rearing, maternity leave, not intruding on leave is still very much viewed as a woman issue. So how can we empower men to take their leave? I just think you have to do it. You just have to be willing to do it and be unapologetic about it. Um, for me, it wasn't a question that I even considered. It was, this is what I'm going to do. I went into my bosses and I said, this is, this is my plan. Um, and, and I think an important thing to make sure that everyone realizes that, you know, I have so many people that, you know, when I tell them what I did, you know, what I did or what I was doing at the time, they, you know, were just effusive with the praise of like, wow, that's so great. It's so wonderful that your employer, you know, does this and, you know, really enables you to do this. But the reality is, is really what I did was I used mostly the 12 weeks of FMLA that everyone is entitled, both mothers and fathers. And I think there's this, there's this disconnect that people don't realize that FMLA applies for, for both parents um, and that all fathers do have this ability to take at least their FMLA, even if there isn't a paternity leave there. Um, so I, th I think encouraging men to just say, hey, this is, this is a right and entitlement that I have um, and, and just go out and do it. Now we're shifting back to Leslie. The, the uh, question that I have for you is, as the first black managing partner at your firm, you obviously had a very narrow path to success, and there are many obstacles in your path. Considering the changes in society, do you think that everyone has an equal opportunity to succeed in the legal profession? I do, but I think it has a lot to do with the culture of the firm. Um, I was very fortunate to be at a very progressive firm um, that looked for ways for promoting uh, people of color, uh, women to positions of power and leadership in the firm. Uh, this does not happen unless there are concerted steps taken to make it happen. For instance, on the management board, we had a system uh, where if you wanted to be on the management board, you had to identify your interest, you had to travel throughout all 13 cities where we had offices and campaign, and we found that women did not want to do that. We didn't want to promote ourselves like that. It felt uncomfortable for a lot of women. And so they changed the system uh, so that the partnership at large would nominate the people who were best suited to manage the firm. 
And within one year, we went from one person, one female on the management board, to five women on the management board. So uh, I was very fortunate that I was at a firm that um, understood that we would be a better firm if we were more diverse, if we were more inclusive, and if we had more women in positions of leadership within the firm. And then they said, okay, how do we go about making that happen? I feel so strongly about this question. I've got to jump in because I just got into a debate with one of my partners about this. Um, I think it is in no way, shape, or form equal. Women do not, in my opinion, do not have even close to an equal opportunity for a couple of reasons. Um, First, I think most people agree that having a mentor and a sponsor is essential to success. Well, at my firm, which I think is an amazing firm and as good as you get for being a woman, for being a diverse attorney, we have got 33 male partners and seven female partners. Associates don't have the same breadth um, of opportunities to find mentors and sponsors. You just don't buy the numbers. The other big obstacle that I see is being a female lawyer, I think, is much more exhausting than being a male attorney because we have to think about everything that we do. We have to be nice, but not too nice. Uh, We have to be aggressive, but not too aggressive. We have to make sure we look nice, but not too nice. Everything that we do, the way that we give constructive feedback, the way that we interact with clients, you have to think about how is this going to be taken. Um, And I just don't think that men have to go through that same set of mental gymnastics every step that they make. And I think that's why a lot of women drop out. It is exhausting to have to think about how every single thing that you say is going to be interpreted. Um, And I think men have got this much leeway in terms of how they want to be personality-wise. I think women have got to walk a much narrower line, and it's just, it's, it's exhausting. And for the record, when she said men have this much leeway, her hands pretty much spanned the table. And when she was talking about women, it was a itty bitty bitty like inch thing. Make sure the court reporter gets that. It's the litigator, sorry. So does this come down to culture of the firm or is this a greater sort of socio and cultural issue? I think it's a greater issue. Um, It's not just firms, um, you know, whether you work for the government, you work in a smaller firm or a larger firm, it's really more um, cultural and just pervasive in terms of people's perceptions. I pick juries all the time, and I'm always thinking about that when I'm picking a jury. I talk with every jury that I pick about implicit bias. And and I think that now there's some discussion even among you know the American Bar Association whether or not lawyers should be required to discuss implicit bias with jurors in different types of cases. Um, just because it's just, well, talked about, but also because you learn so much by talking about those issues with people. Um, I do a lot of criminal defense cases, and if it's a self-defense case, but my client is, you know, a man defending himself against a woman or a man claiming that he was sexually assaulted by a woman, those gender norms are so bizarre to address with a jury that you get some of the most bizarre answers that you're like, okay, this is going to be fun. <laughs> but I think it's a bigger issue than just law firms and um, changing the perception at the management. Well, I do think that implicit bias is, I mean, clearly across the board. I do think, though, that there are some organizations in some places that do a better job than others. Um, and so, you know, I actually went, you know, as I was preparing for this, I actually took a look at HUD's um, senior leadership. And I actually was really shocked to find that um, basically all of our senior counsel, uh, it's actually a slightly shaded more in favor of women than it is in, in men. And so I think there are places where you can go and where women can be just as successful as men. And where there's, you know, it's based on the merits and that these other things don't get in the way. So while I do, you know, clearly agree that, you know, culturally that that does exist, I think there are places that can do it and, and have done it better. This is Bruce Smith, Dean of the University of Denver Sturm College of Law, an innovative private law school dedicated to the public good. You can learn more about Denver Law, Denver's only law school, by visiting www.law.du.edu. Well, on the issue of implicit bias, and I'd like to open this to the whole panel, how do you confront implicit bias, whether it's in the workplace or, let's say, when you're in a courtroom? We talk about it. I mean, um, literally this morning, um, two of us were speaking to our firm's management 
uh, about implicit bias as they enter our every two-year compensation cycle, not because they haven't heard it before, but because they need to hear it again and again, and we all need to say it again and again, and they need to hear it right before they're making those kinds of decisions. And we'll never get rid of implicit bias, but we have to we have to keep talking about it to remind ourselves that we all have it. I, I agree, and it needs to be at every juncture of the firm, you know, not just the people who are making the compensation decisions, but all the lawyers, because we all have these biases. Every single one of us, there's a natural inclination to want to um, be with people who um, may look like you or have a similar background, um, have similar attitudes, and we have to constantly fight that. Whenever we are in a situation where we're reactive or we respond in a certain way to either an issue or a person uh, with the acknowledgement that we have these biases and that we don't want our decision to be controlled by them. Um, I actually was a beneficiary of of, uh, unconscious bias because I was um, uh, mentored by two um, 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 men of color. Um, and I think they gravitated to me because of that similarity, and uh, so I uh, actually benefited from it. And I often wonder whether I would have had as uh, great a mentoring experience if it had been with a white male or a white female. I I don't know. Um, I think it's an interesting thing to think about. But we all have them, and the important thing is that we take them into account when we have to make important decisions with respect to people. When I, you know, when I taught here at the law school, when I have mentees through camp, I would tell my students and I tell my mentees now that I don't think you can have enough mentors in the legal profession and sponsors. And I encourage them not just to seek out whoever is like them, but people outside their firm or outside their office. And I tell each of them, you need an old white guy. Because I wouldn't have had the doors open for me without the old white guys that took me under their wings. And I say that because I, you know, I was president of the Hispanic National Bar here in Colorado. I was vice president of the National Hispanic Bar. And you can work as much as you want within your culture and people, and they're just as diverse. I think Kimber was talking about this earlier about you, can, you have maybe a black woman or a trans Asian and the different differences that you have. But I, I remember being in a room full of people and somebody said, well, we've got all the specialty bars here. So if you're not a white male in Colorado and you're a lawyer, you're a member of a special bar. So the specialty bars often meet and coordinate on different things. And one of the things that one of the coordinators had said to us, who was, of course, a white male, said, well, you all have the same issues. That's why we brought you together, because it's just easier to talk about these issues because you're all here and you all have the same ones. And I said, I'm sorry. (laughs) You know, even in the Hispanic bar, you can ask three different female attorneys and you're going to get three different opinions, especially if one's Puerto Rican, one's Cuban. You know, I mean, you're just we don't all have the same issues. So please don't categorize us in that way. And so I think that's you know one of the big things with, you know, implicit bias and getting past it is you need mentors that can look at things in a different way and have those different experiences from you. I, you know, I talk to jurors about implicit bias, but I, I agree that you really just have to keep talking about it because we all have it. And the more that you notice your own biases, the more comfortable you are really being able to address it with other people. And, and it's not just, again, at firms, it's, you know, the government level or wherever. But I, I just, I, I think if you're going to tell people to search out mentors or sponsors, and we all need them because that's how the legal profession works is this networking thing and women have a much harder time doing it. You need a diverse group to really help you navigate things and give you that different perspective, I think. I think probably the people who are sitting in this room, by virtue of the fact that you are sitting in this room, agree that everybody has implicit bias. But what I have found is that people who aren't part of this conversation, so Fiona Arnold, I don't know if any of you know Fiona, said, there's not going to be progress until we stop talking with each other. We need to bring other people into the group because most of the people in my firm 
I don't think feel that they've got any bias at all. And it's not until you can show them some examples. I don't know if people are familiar with the Harvard yeah. test. Um, and, may, and make these people realize that they've got implicit bias. Things aren't going to change, because you're not going to work on a problem that you don't think you have. And so we need to convince the people who are not in this room that they, in fact, have implicit bias and are making sometimes poor decisions based on that. But they need to realize that they have it first. Um, and I don't think a lot of them do. Chris, you participated in Diversity Lab's Women in Law Hackathon and actually were on the winning team. Uh, your platform was called SMART, which st stands for Solutions to Measure, Advance, and Reward Talent. And how, how did this solution, how did that address the problem of implicit bias with regard to compensation? Well, I guess I can't say that it did address it yet because it doesn't exist yet. It is under development. Um, but the, the thinking is that um, all of us do a lot of things that are not immediately revenue generating for our firms. The data shows that in many situations, obviously not all, but in many situations women do more of those sorts of things than men and different types of, call it non-billable activities. And so the idea behind SMART was that we would track time in each of these categories. We came up with eight pillars of, um, of non-billable time and ways to measure that, that time and activity. Each firm would allocate a different value to each of those pillars. Obviously, different firms have different values, different cultures. But it would allow both management to see how lawyers are allocating their time and lawyers themselves to see how we are allocating our time so that we could self-regulate. A lot of studies show that women have a harder time saying no than men do. And when we do say no, we're penalized for it because we're not helping and we're not team players. And so the thinking was, was sort of coming at it from two different directions, both to track it and show firm management what people were doing, but also for us to be able to have a language with which to say, you've told me you only want me to spend 20% of my time on this type of activity. I have filled that bucket. Do you really, do you want me to do more or should I stop now? <laughs> and, um, that was the, that's the idea. It's under development. It hasn't been implemented, but um, we're really hopeful that it will help. I think it is a business, but I do think that firms are beginning to recognize that you have to go um, behind the numbers. You can't just assume that a person who puts in 2,000 billable hours a year is making a full commitment to the firm. Um, I know that when we were on the management board and looking at, you know, compensation for partners, we really uh, tried to get behind the numbers and say, okay, who is actually mentoring? Who is doing important pro bono work? Who is delegating to associates so that they can train and progress? Who is building a practice bigger than themselves? And I, for one, became very skeptical of the lawyers who were just putting in the billable hours because I did not feel they were making a full contribution to the firm. And in many cases, those are the first partners to leave because they have not become a part of the firm. And they take their book of business with them, and they're gone. So I think firms are beginning to understand that there are multiple ways to make contributions uh, in a law firm. Yes, the billable hour is still important, and the lawyers who continue to bring in work. But there are, you know, what about the partner who sustains that client, who grows that client, who actually has the relationship with the client? So a lot of questions have to be asked, um, and I think, again, I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful that we're getting away from putting so much emphasis on the billable hour. I like to call it long-term investment work as opposed to non-billable work because it, it, we are a business, and most businesses are smart enough to know that there are short-term revenues and then there are you know, investments in your capital, and our people are our capital, and we have to invest in them. 
But I think that's one of the reasons why there's such disparity between, I think somebody mentioned the statistic of women equity partners um, being only 18%. And I've heard it referred to as the office housework. Mm -hmm. There are (laughs) intangibles that are essential to the lifeblood of any business. You need the people who are going to recruit. You need the people who are going to mentor. You need the people who are going to help the business morale. But those are the intangibles. And women tend to fill those roles more. So we're spending 300 hours on the office housework doing things that are essential to the lifeblood while our male counterparts are billing an extra 300 hours. And so they make partner faster. They make more money because that is what's valued as opposed to the office housework. And I think it's great that you're starting to track that because it is essential to the business. Um, But unfortunately, I think women still tend to, to take on those roles and they're just not recognized. How can women be empowered to push back when they have filled their 20% bucket of the non-billables? What can, what can you do on a management level and what can you do on an individual level? Well, I think management has to recognize that there's a lot of value to the recruiting, to the mentoring, all of these things that women are doing, and compensate them and reward them. And simultaneously, I think they need to punish the people who are not engaging in those behaviors and just billing hours, because the firm or the business is not sustainable that way. But right now, that's just not the way it is. The it's the high bill, billers are rewarded. They're not punished in any way, shape, or form. And the people who are spending their time doing the recruiting and the mentoring um, and making a good reputation for their business in the community just aren't seeing those types of rewards. I think that gets back to your firm culture question, though, because I do think that some firms are better at that than others. And and mine, like your former firm, Leslie, we try to get behind the numbers. But I think that the key is to have the data to be able to get behind those numbers, to, to understand what people are spending their time on and and it's twofold it's management seeing what people are doing and it's it's us having the language to instead of saying no because that's so hard and is fraught with implicit bias to say something like uh, you know I, i've spent a lot of time on that sort of activity this year uh, I'm, I'm done instead you know or some other language I, i'm i'm struggling to come up with the right word but something that's different from no But again, I think that has to go back to not just a management level. It's, it's again, just that it's a general out there because we all think that way and and have those biases. You know, whether you work in a government or the firm, you know, I have to say, you know, government actually stepped out a little ahead of the game with a lot of at least the work-life balance. I just did air quotes. I'm sorry. Um, In terms of, you know, flex hours, you know, loaning hours for leave, different things like that, telework. Uh, I, you know, I remember, and I traveled a ton when I worked for the SEC, but I got hours when I was on a bus reading, when I was on the plane, all these great hours that, that were an incentive to work when you were commuting or something like that. And that was really impressive. And I think until that kind of becomes more of the norm of a true work-life balance or rewarding, the Colorado Supreme Court um, started, you know, their pro bono program where firms that commit so many pro bono hours get recognized. It's one way to get your firm recognized, get you published in this list, right? I mean, most lawyers should be encouraged to do work outside of the firm, whether it's whatever type of volunteer work or whatever, and you don't get paid and you don't get to bill it, but that should be rewarded because it does go not only towards the firm and building themselves or not that I love the word, but branding, but also just to help the perception of lawyers. I mean, we're still not exactly loved. <laughs> so, you know, if you get out there and do some good in the community, they'd be like, oh, I know that one lawyer that did something nice. <laughs> so, Liz, you pointed out that government was a bit ahead of the curve here compared to the private sector. I'm wondering, Leslie, if the problem here is the economic model that law firms use, namely based around the billable hour, because government, they're not getting paid for every hour they're working in the same way. Well, I think it is. I mean, that has been um, the hallmark of the private law firm for a long time. Um, And I think it took the recession for the wake-up call to go out that you can't just run a law firm by increasing your billable hours every year and charging clients more per hour um, because there's going to be resistance. It's just not sustainable. 
Um, and so I think that was, I think, a wake-up call for a lot of firms to say, hey, we have to look at this uh, in, a, in a slightly different way, and we have to, again, acknowledge that there are multiple ways that lawyers can make contributions in a law firm and find out some way to reward uh, those contributions uh, in an equitable fashion. Um, you know, with respect to the, the you were talking about, you need, you need to gain, the, uh, gather the data. The other thing I think is you need to be willing to have very difficult positions with some of the most powerful rainmakers in the firm, um, people that you sometimes don't want to um, confront, <laughs> confront uh, for fear that they might leave. But it's absolutely important that you have those discussions. We've, we've spoken about culture, and I'll just open this up to the whole panel because I think we have different perspectives here, but I'd like to start with the, the younger attorneys, um, Clark and Zach, about do you think as a younger attorney you can have a positive impact on your organization's culture? In my particular case, absolutely. And um, a big reason for that is that when an organization has been successful, it's uh, proceeding in a particular way for, for a long time, It's um, sometimes it's hard to know that uh, the market is changing, so we need to change as well. And sometimes it helps just to have fresh voices, fresh opinions, and just to get the dialogue going. It's, uh, for instance, um, because of, of this culture that, that welcomes uh, some new ideas, um, our firm recently started what's known as uh, agile working, where, where folks uh, can, can work from home. or It requires a culture that, that invites um, different ideas, new ideas, and it also takes uh, young young attorneys, uh, junior attorneys, that's uh, willing to, to speak up. Let's be honest. Lawyers love precedent. And I think a big part of what we can do is to try things out and to say, hey, I can take paternity leave and come back and jump back into the job and, and the cases that I was working on without missing a beat. I can work from home a day or two days a week and not have that affect my relationships at work. Um, so I think we definitely can have an impact um, that by going and trying out as the legal world shifts and changes to adopt new technologies and reacts to you know other, other societal pressures, that as those things happen, that we can demonstrate that you can do these things and still be successful, whether you're a man or a woman. Now, Miko, you had talked about that tension between the expectations of women attorneys. How can women positively impact their firm or organizational culture in a way that wouldn't put them in, in that unenviable position? I think you have to have a lot of courage, quite frankly, and you have to be willing to speak up and, and point things out um, and go out on a limb and, and try and persuade the powers that be that they need to redefine value, um, that they need to be conscious of their implicit bias. But it's not it's not easy. That's why when you asked me at the beginning of this program what dinosaur I would be if I had to choose, I said stegosaurus because of the armor. You, you have to have a very thick skin, I think. And you can do little things. You know, when one of my uh, good friends who had a who had a baby and came back to work and she kept on missing out on these great opportunities for a case, but it was it required traveling. And the senior leaders had the best intentions. You know, we don't want to ask her to take on this case because it requires traveling. She shouldn't have to be away from her child. It came from a very, very good place why they weren't asking this person to be on a case. And she had to speak up and say, are you crazy? I've got a newborn. Please send me to a hotel out of state. <laughs> um, you are not doing me any favors by making me stay home. Um, and she did it in a in a very thoughtful, humorous way, which I think made it easier. But she called them out on their implicit bias, and you need to you need to do that. Um, and after she said that, you know, I don't think I, I I was lucky enough to follow after her. I got asked to go away all the time, but you have to have the courage to say it. But you have to do it in a very thoughtful way. And I think that's hard for new lawyers or under two year lawyers. Um, just because you, it's such a risky period <laughs> in where you are. And, and, and it's not always even easy to go ask to whoever the managing attorney is that you're supposed to talk to, even within your own firm. And again, that's why I get back to the mentors or sponsors, people outside the firm that you can talk to. I, I know, you know, I had a mentee who um, 
it was her first year at a big firm and all these other new associates would get asked to things after hours, whether it was happy hour, a ball game, whatever. And she wasn't getting asked. And when, you know, she finally found the right way to inquire about that, it was because she had children and they assumed that she would rather just be home with her kids. But the message that she was getting was that she wasn't valued and they didn't want her there. So it took a lot to get her the right coaching to bring it upright and do it comfortably to where she didn't feel like she was going to get penalized for it or to do it in a confrontive manner. So I think it, it's harder for younger associates, new lawyers, definitely. So I think that's where those of us who've been practicing maybe a little bit more than two years can really help. You asked how women can help. I think we can help those women who are more junior to us to point out those things when they are being excluded and and as Miko said, it's often from a very good place. It's not a negative. It's it, it's maybe a little paternalistic or maternalistic that you know the associates trying to be the, the they're trying to protect the associate. But um, I think we can all point those things out for others more easily than we can sometimes for ourselves. A, f- a female partner who's uh, who's been in practice for um, I, I believe about twenty years or so talked about that um, she was so aware of her own implicit bias um, when she was assigning tasks to new parents, both moms and dads, that she was concerned that she didn't want to um, uh, prevent new parents from from work opportunities um, because of their their new responsibilities, additional responsibilities, and so so her take was to make sure to have open dialogues. Um, with, with folks just to see where, where they're at. And I think that that's one fantastic instance, but that has to be um, an ongoing dialogue as well. Well, we've talked about you know gender assumptions from our colleagues, but what about from your clients? I mean, how do you handle that? I remember many times sitting uh, in a uh, meeting with a client and saying, Leslie, we, we hear great things about you, um, but we need a pit bull for this case, and we're just not sure you're qualified to be a pit bull. And, you know, you have to step back and say, you know, well, wait a minute here. You know, um, I have achieved a lot more success in cases based upon my knowledge of the law, based upon my strategic thinking, than taking some kind of scorched earth, take no prisoners approach. But you have to educate your own clients about this because they come with their own hidden biases or sometimes very obvious biases that you have to deal with. I'm glad you brought that up, Leslie, because I want to talk about implicit bias with this idea that sometimes diversity can be counterproductive in the sense that clients sometimes are unwilling to deal with a diverse attorney or a woman attorney. And I'd like to open that up to the panel. Have any of you had experiences where a client was causing trouble? (laughs) I just assume that the answer is yes. Around the table. <laughs> um, I did have an experience once a few years ago where a, a client of one of my partners um, was doing a transaction, and and my partner is not a an M and A lawyer, and so he asked me to work with the client, and the client said, "I'm not so sure about Chris." And fortunately, my partner, who is a wonderful human being, um, said, "Well." Let's talk about why. And um, it finally came out that it was because I'm a woman. And my partner said, you don't, you don't care about that because of the quality of her work. And just trust me on this. And, you know, it, made, it put me in an uncomfortable situation because I had to prove myself twice, right? I had to prove my capabilities and that being a woman was not a negative. Um, but I had my partner's support, and, and that was critical. But, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm guessing no one around the table who's a woman hasn't had that experience. No, and it, it's not always just clients. I, I remember, you know, trying cases when you're pregnant in front of a jury is just a <laughs> ball. Um, I'm pretty sure you speak the, from the mouth of God directly when you're pregnant. But, you know, I, I remember the district attorney's office actually filing motions in limine that I couldn't come out from behind the podium if I was trying cases pregnant and that I couldn't rest my hands on my belly. And the jurors were not were going to be instructed not to ask me what trimester I was in or if I knew the gender of the child because it, it didn't fail. I mean, they... Pregnant women are just so fun anyway. But you, I mean, you know, <laughs> to everybody else. To everybody else. Yeah. Maybe not to their spouses. So, but, you know, you, 
it was just bizarre to me to have because it was like every trial jurors would be like you know oh we took a poll we wanted to know you know do you know the gender and how far along you are and blah blah I'm like okay but so did you hear everything else I said because <laughs> that was kind of important but it it was remarkable to me that you know a group of district attorneys would have filed that motion and I I framed it because I thought that was just one of the best things I'd ever seen <laughs> in my life but you do especially from clients and did um, the judge grant it th- no the judge did not grant <laughs> I'm I'm pretty sure the judge gave it to attorney regulation, but <laughs> I I I have had clients who have said I want you to be really aggressive. Can you be aggressive? Well, I gave birth without drugs, so yes, I can be as aggressive as you need me to be. Next question. So it does, but it does happen. I think it happens in a courtroom too. And I, I think Miko, you brought this up in terms of being aggressive but not too aggressive, because a woman that is really aggressive, that cannot backfire not just with the jury but with the judge or opposing counsel I mean I you know I've seen female lawyers when they object or you know do a very impassioned argument have a male attorney get up and say she's hysterical and I thought no she was actually just presenting a really good case but it it, those biases are 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 still there and and it is very different for women than it is for men it's the double bind right you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't and I think one of the challenges, both with clients um, and, and non-clients, a lot of people will assume if you're a woman or if you're a diverse attorney and you show up on the trial team or you show up to a pitch, that you're the token, uh, that you don't actually deserve to be there because you're good. You're there because you're a woman or because you're Asian um, or a different ethnicity. Uh, and so you, you're under the microscope because people are always looking to say, aha, see, you're not really qualified. You don't really deserve to be here. So I tell people, um, women and, and attorneys of color, you've got to be twice as good. Where a lot of people will say, you know, aren't you lucky? You get to tick off many boxes. You have all of these advantages. Um, and I think it's actually quite the opposite. You have to be that much better because people are always wondering, are you there because of your gender or your race as opposed to your qualifications? And and I don't think white men have to ask that same question. It's presumed that they're there because they're qualified. I should mention that after the deal closed with the client that I mentioned, he told my partner that I was a little hard to manage. <laughs> <laughs> the client did. So you can be too aggressive or you can be not aggressive enough. So, Well, and, you know, Miko, you brought up that... Um, there are these perceptions. One of the things that I think the the specialty bars and, and the Supreme Court, at least Chief Justice Rice and the governor have been trying to do is in terms of nominating commissions, interviewing people for prospective judicial appointments. Um, they've never really kept track of the numbers of people that write in and apply to get on the bench as opposed to the number of people that get selected or the makeup of the nominating commissions in terms of gender and, and diversity. So and I, I love that. I, somebody said something about um, gender and diversity, and I said, well, I think diverse includes gender. But <laughs> <laughs> the, the interesting thing is there's been a movement to, to do some training for the nominating commissions and for the governor and, and his staff on implicit bias so that they understand some of the perceptions that people have or preconceived notions that people have. And, and one of the most interesting ones that came up is, is candidates that are obviously women or, or people of color. They are assumed to not write as well as white men. And, and it's interesting, and, and I think there's even been studies on this, and it's in some of the implicit bias writing and training materials. If you know, you, We all have the implicit bias information out there about how there's this perception that we can't write. Well, you, this, the particular study that maybe you're referring to, and I think it's a recent one, is where they gave the same paper to five partners to grade, telling half the partners that it was a person of color that wrote it, and then the other half that it was a white uh, uh, associate. And, uh, of course, the paper uh, that was graded by the partners who thought it was a person of color was graded much more harshly uh, than the other paper. So, uh, yes, it's out there. I think that takes us to, I think we've all kind of been touching on this sort of this distinction between diversity versus inclusion. And I'd like to open this up to the panel, but especially to the people of color. What's your take on that? What is the distinction between diversity versus inclusion within your firm, within your organization? I think if you just have diversity alone, it doesn't work. I mean, we've seen 
when people don't feel like they're actually included and part of the community and instead they're just a box to check off and that's the purpose that they serve, it doesn't work. And then it's a self-fulfilling prophecy because you have women and people, you know, attorneys of color, it's like a rotating door and it makes it that much harder to recruit. So there absolutely has to be an inclusion aspect to it. Um, But for there to be an inclusion aspect, I think um, the management, the people who are running the firm and setting the culture have to actually embrace it and realize that they that they don't know everything, that younger attorneys, diverse attorneys, uh, women attorneys um, have a lot to offer and that they need to think of things from a new perspective. Because if, if you're just, if you think of yourself as a number and that's how you're treated, it's just not going to work. Yeah, I think the way I'd like to describe it is the difference between being asked to the party and being asked to dance. Um, you can ask a lot of people to the party, but if they don't feel like they're part of the actual uh, group setting uh, and they're excluded, then it doesn't matter whether they were invited in the first place. I also think that um, while there are unique uh, issues with with uh, diversity, that, um, for instance, we've talked a lot about mentorship. If, if folks only communicate with uh, folks of uh, common backgrounds, then, then um, folks never get uh, familiar with, with uh, other perspectives. So, so I think that the inclusion part is where it's, it's, it's the big picture, where it's uh, regardless of, of uh, someone's diverse status, that you have a common goal and, and that you work together regardless of, of what, 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 what box you, you check off. And if there's some way to create empathy, I think that's really huge in creating an inclusive environment. And I'll give you an example. So I started a program at my firm called the Women in Leadership Lecture Series Program, where we invite panelists to come and present on women leadership. And the first uh, program where we opened it to men we had, I think, 15 men sign up and three men actually stay. And we would have, you know, the powerful white male partners come down into the conference room and they'd look in and they would see this sea of women and they've never been the minority before and they would hightail it out there. They were terrified. And for the three men who actually stayed for the program, and these are our senior white rainmakers, they sat in the back and they sat on the edges of the room and they sat there with their arms crossed and slinking. And it was one of the most gratifying moments to me in the program when one of the senior men leaned over to a female associate and said, I know how you feel now. Um, And I think once you understand what it feels like to be the minority, and it's not that easy when no one else looks like you to lean in and to speak your voice and to participate, once they realize how hard that is and there's that empathy, I think it goes a really long way to creating an inclusive environment. Well, I want to thank everybody and all of our participants on the panel today for what was a really engaging and very enlightening discussion. And I would love to thank everybody at the University of Denver Sturm College of Law for hosting this event and for facilitating this event. Next week, we will be discussing challenges and benefits when you meet multiple diverse categorizations. I'm Kimber Russell. This episode was produced by Kyle McEntee, theme music by Brad Kemp. Special thanks to Olympia Duhart, Marissa Olson, Ashley Milne-Tight, Karen Ulrich-Stacy, and Susan Poser. Women in the Law is a production of Law School Transparency. To learn more about LST, visit lawschooltransparency.com. To learn more about this miniseries, visit lstradio.com women.